Pastor and author John Ortberg tells this story from his book, God is Closer Than You Think. Father Damien was a priest who became famous for his willingness to serve lepers. He moved to Kalawao. I hope I said that right. Uh, to the people of Kalawao, I apologize. It's a village on the island of Molokai. I said that one right. It's in Hawaii. And the people there had been contained, uh, quarantined to serve in a leper colony. For 16 years, Father Damien lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced their bodies no one else would touch, preached to their hearts, and that otherwise would have been left alone. He organized schools. He organized bands. He organized choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. And he built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Slowly, it was said, Kalawao became a place to live rather than just a place to die. For Father Damien offered hope. Father Damien was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate his, himself from his people. He dipped his fingers in the poi bowl along with the lepers. He shared his pipe. He did not always wash his hands after bandaging sores. He got close. And for this, the people there loved him. Then one day he stood up and began his sermon with two words. We lepers. See, he wasn't just helping them now. He was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin. For he had, first he had chosen to live as they lived, and then he chose to die as they died. Now they were in it together. I like what Mr. Ortberg, what Pastor Ortberg says in response to this story. He says, uh, one day God came to earth and he began a message by saying, we lepers. Now he wasn't just helping us. Now he was one of us. Now he was in our skin. And now we were in it together. This morning, we're going to begin a brand new sermon series called Stories We Know, Volume 2, Stories About Jesus. If you were here last summer, you know that I preached a sermon series last summer called Stories We Know, Stories from the Old Testament. All summer long, we talked about famous stories from the Old Testament. We talked about creation, we talked about Noah, we talked about David and Goliath, and we talked about all these great stories from the Old Testament. Well, this summer we're going to do the same thing, only we're going to look at the Gospels. We're going to, uh, I like to preach famous stories from the Bible during the summertime, and uh, these are stories that we may know, may not know, depending on how much Sunday school you had as a kid. Uh, this summer, uh, this is going to be the sequel to last summer's series, and in the future, each summer, we're going to continue this. Next summer, we're going to talk about stories from the book of Acts, then we're going to talk about more stories from the Old Testament, then we're going to talk about more stories from Jesus' life, um, and we're just going to talk about these great old Bible stories that I, I grew up hearing, and, and these great old Bible stories that I love, and I hope you love them too. Maybe you'll hear some things that you've never heard before, maybe you'll hear some stories you've never heard before, or learn some things about the stories that you might not have known. Uh, and I pray that this is just a, a really good time of, of, of reconnecting with Bible stories. And we're going to focus on three of the four Gospels this summer. We're going to focus on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I plan on preaching all the way through the book of John uh, in the near future, so uh, I want to save those stories for that sermon series. So for this summer, we're going to focus on what are called the Synoptic Gospels. Okay, and uh, synoptic is a big fancy word that uh, that's meaning escapes my, my mind at the moment, but uh, it's a big fancy word uh, called synoptic, and uh, it refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, this morning, we're going to celebrate Christmas in June. 
we're going to celebrate Christmas today. You know, Hark the Herald, Silent Night, The Way in a Manger. Uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Um, you know, we're talking about Christmas in June today. We're starting this series with the story of Jesus' birth. Now, I love Christmas, and I'm kind of excited, you know, to be talking about Christmas today. I'm kind of excited to be talking about, you know, uh, uh, reindeer. No, 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 no reindeer. No, I'm t- excited about talking about the manger and all that stuff. It's just wonderful. Now, if you have ever wondered... If you've ever wondered what it would be like to celebrate Christmas in South Florida, this is kind of what it's like. About 70 degrees outside, you know, you're sitting here in church, the fans are going, you know, you got the windows open. This is kind of what it's like to celebrate Christmas every year in South Florida. Uh, well, anyway, uh, we're going to focus this morning on Jesus' birth and what it means for us. So, let's, without further ado, let's pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I pray for this time and ask that you would uh, just be present in this moment. Uh, that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us this day. Speak to each one of us through your Spirit, God. And I pray that uh, this message, as we turn back to the, to the birth of Christ, to the beginning of his life, that uh, you would bring to mind uh, just the joy of Christmas time, but also a challenge, uh, a challenge to follow you more closely. And so, Lord, we give this time to you and pray that you would be uh, present in it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, one of our family traditions is that we go down to central Illinois to Shannon's parents' house. And uh, every year, Shannon's dad uh, pulls out a Bible, and he reads the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is we are in Luke chapter 2, talking about the story of the birth of Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke 2. I'm not going to read the passage, but you can kind of follow along as I retell the story this morning. But before we begin with Luke 2, I want to look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. God promised in the Old Testament that the little town of Bethlehem uh, would come, out of there would come the ultimate ruler of Israel. And somewhere between 4 B.C. and 6 B.C., the emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus, called for a census to be taken of the entire empire. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering how in the world could 4 B.C., something happen 4 B.C., you know, if that's four years before the birth of Christ, how could that happen? How could the birth of Christ happen four years before the birth of Christ? You know what I'm saying? Or six years before the birth of Christ. How could six years before the birth of Christ happen before the birth of Christ? It's just the way the calendar is set up. Anyway, it was about you know, 2012 years ago or so, 2013 years ago, Caesar Augustus ordered that a census be taken of the entire Roman Empire. And it would be done for taxation purposes. It would be done for military purposes. Every male in the empire would travel to his own hometown in order to register with the empire. Uh, Joseph and Mary went to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem. Okay, do I really need to tell the story? I, we all know the story. You know, we know that Joseph and Mary got on the donkey. They rode all the way. Well, I'm going to tell the story anyway because there's some interesting things in here that you may not know. Uh, jo- so Joseph and Mary go to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem, and it just so happens that this was the time that Mary was about to give birth. That she was, uh, her baby was going to be born. Like I said, you know the story. There's no room in the inn, and so Jesus was born in a stable and was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Anybody know what swaddling clothes are? Rags, bandages. Yeah, pretty much. You know, you, you, you hear the word swaddling. We hear that every year, once a year, we pull out the word swaddling, and people go, uh, 
What in the world is swaddling? I never really understood swaddling until Jonathan was born. You know, Jonathan was born and, and uh, they taught us how to swaddle him. I never believed at some point in my life that I would be a swaddler, but yet I have swaddled. And uh, so I take, you know, you take Jonathan, you, you, we laid him on the bed, and you take this uh, blanket, you know, and you just wrap him up as tight as you possibly can, you know, and, and you just worry that you're going to suffocate the child. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I swaddled. Um, but it means to wrap uh, or bind in bandages or to restrain, like in a blanket. It means to wrap or to restrain. So there you go. You can learn something new every day. Uh, now, around this time, there were some shepherds out in the field nearby, and they were watching their sheep. An angel appeared to them, and the Bible says that the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I've said this before, but apparently angels don't look like Roma Downey from, like, Touched by an Angel, because every time in the Christmas story an angel shows up, everybody's afraid. You know, it's like, ah! So angels are apparently kind of, you know, fear-inducing. I've never met one, I've never seen one, but i got a feeling that they're pretty kind of awe-inspiring, pretty powerful, and, and kind of almost, in a way, kind of scary looking. But anyway, so uh, the, the shepherds are terrified. The angel brings them good news of great joy that a Savior had been born in nearby Bethlehem. And then this huge host of the heavenly angels can't even contain themselves anymore, and they just burst forth in the sky with this brilliant light, and they're singing praises to God, and it's just totally cool, you know, it's just awesome. These shepherds have never seen anything like this in their lives. The news is so good that they appear in the sky and they burst forth into song. Hark, the herald angels sing. Now they did not sing glory to the newborn king, but rather glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to, to men on whom his favor rests. Now it doesn't quite rhyme like the Christmas song, but that's okay. It's what the Bible says the angels sung, and I believe it to be true. The angels go back into heaven, and the shepherds take off for Bethlehem to see what in the world was going on. And they find the baby Jesus lying in the manger just as they had been told. The shepherds run off and go to tell everybody that they can think of what they had seen, that the Savior had been born. The people who heard what the shepherds say, said, said that, uh, the Bible says that they were amazed. And after the shepherds leave, Mary just sits there and contemplates everything that is happening to her. This young teenage girl trying to grasp it all, trying to figure it all out, trying to understand just what's going on with shepherds and angels and all this stuff. It's got to be really overwhelming. And then the shepherds return and praise and glorify God for everything that's going on, for what they have seen. You see, the shepherds really get it. I mean, the shepherds understand. Now, being a shepherd, it's not the most important job in the world, and it didn't require a great deal of intellect to sit around and watch sheep graze all day, but they really understood what was going on in this little town of Bethlehem. They really got it. They really understood. Here was God becoming a human being in the most simple and vulnerable of ways. He became one of us, by becoming an innocent little baby. He became one of us, for we all start out that way, as sweet, innocent little babies. And then we grow up, he didn't, but we grow up to become horrible, awful, terrible human beings. But Jesus started out just like us, but he grew up into something different. It reminds me of a modern-day parable that Paul Harvey told. This is about a modern man, one of us, he was not a Scrooge. He was a kind, decent, mostly good man, generous to his family, upright in his dealings with others. But he did not believe in all that incarnation stuff and that the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense to him, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just could not swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. 
I'm truly sorry to distress you, he told his wife, but I'm not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he said he would rather stay at home and that he would wait up for them. He stayed, they went. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and the weather getting worse. And then he went back to his fireside chair and he began to read the newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound. Then another and another. At first, he tried to ignore it. He thought maybe someone was trying to throw snowballs at his house. But it just kept going on. Well, when he went to the front door, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the storm, and in a desperate search for shelter, they had flown into his picture window over and over and over again. You've all heard that sound before, I'm sure, as a bird tries to fly into your window. Well, he couldn't let the poor creatures just lie there and freeze. He remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. Uh, they, that could provide a warm shelter, he said, if he could just direct the birds to it. If he could just get the birds to the barn, he could do that. He quickly put on his coat and his galoshes, trampled through the deepening snow to the barn, opened the door wide, and he turned on a light. But the birds wouldn't come in. He figured food would entice them in, and he hurried back to the house. He fetched, he fetched bread crumbs, 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 and he put them down on the ground. And uh, he made a, a trail all the way up to the barn. And yet the birds would not follow. The birds wouldn't go after him. The birds wouldn't go into the barn. And he sat there perplexed as to what to do. And they continued to flap around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms. Instead, they scattered in every direction except the barn. Then he realized they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. How? Any move he made tended to frighten them, confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. If only I could be a bird myself, he thought. If only I could be a bird myself. If only I could be a bird and mingle with them and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid and show them the way to the safe, warm barn. But I'd have to be one of them so that I could see and hear and understand. And at that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sound of the wind. He stood there listening to the bells, Adeste Fidelis, O come all ye faithful and listening to the bells pealing the glad tidings of Christmas, he fell to his knees. Do you see the connection between the first story about the guy, about Father Damien and the lepers, and the story I just told about the guy with the birds? In order to identify with humanity, God had to become human. That's what the story of Jesus' birth is all about. It's about God putting on flesh. It's about God becoming human. It's about God coming to our world and becoming like us. It's that identification with us. There are three thoughts that I want to share with you this morning about the birth of Jesus. Three things that I want to share with you about history and the birth of Jesus. Three things I want to tell you this morning. The first thing I want to tell you is how God works through history. God literally works through history. For Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, certain things had to happen. Joseph 
who was the supposed father of Jesus, had to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And sure enough, God worked through the Roman Empire to ensure that that happened. You see, people were not as mobile as they are now. Nazareth, uh, did anybody know how far Nazareth is from Bethlehem? It's about 50 miles. It's over 50 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was in the south, uh, was south of Jerusalem in an area known as Judah. Uh, Nazareth, where Joseph was living, was in northern Palestine in the area of Galilee. So you got 50 miles on donkey back. Now, I've, I've ridden a donkey before. I don't remember much about the experience other than it wasn't very comfortable. Okay? I rode for a short distance. If Mary rode on the back of a donkey several months pregnant, many months pregnant, for 50 miles. I, I can't imagine that this was the most comfortable trip to make. It's a long and hard trip with a very pregnant fiancé, perhaps, like I said, riding on the back of a donkey. But God, in his incredible foreknowledge and in his sovereignty, worked through history so that prophecy would be fulfilled. Remember that prophecy that I read earlier from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And that's uh, the, the prophecy about how the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. But that prophecy had to be fulfilled. It had to be fulfilled, for God is not a liar. God does not lie. And God works through history in order to fulfill prophecy. So God works through history. Second, God enters history. Have you ever, do you know what a deist is? Have you ever heard of the word deism? Maybe you've heard about the founding fathers of America, that some of them were deists. Uh, a deist believes that God created the heavens and the earth and then he stepped away, and he's let everything run its natural course. He doesn't interfere. He doesn't get involved. He doesn't get his hands dirty with the muck of earth. But rather, it's, it's kind of like bowling, all right? You know, you, you bowl, and, and you let the ball go, and it's going to go where it's going to go. Now, if you're a bowler like me, that's typically the gutter. If you're a bowler like Mike Kabaki, that ball is going to knock some pins down. Right, Mike? Hope so. Now, when you let the ball go, no matter how much you do this, it's still going to go where it goes. It's kind of like what a deist believes about God and, and creation, that God set the ball going. Where it goes, nobody knows. But see, I don't believe that about God. I believe that God entered history, that God, through the incarnation of, of Jesus Christ, entered history. And I love this concept of the incarnation, how God became a human being, how God became Emmanuel, God with us. He is not some far off God who doesn't care about humanity or the events of human history. We've already, you know, we have seen how God works through human history in order to bring about uh, the, the fulfillment of prophecy, to bring about his purposes. But not only does God work through history, God entered history. He became a real human being, and the Bible tells us that Jesus was real. He was a real human being. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Do you hear what John said? We saw him. We beheld him. We touched him. They had touched Jesus. Jesus appeared and Jesus is real. 
He was really God in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, Jesus Christ, put on flesh and lived among human beings. He was Emmanuel, God with us. It is about the incarnation is all about God putting on human flesh. It's about God becoming real. God living here, not in Griffith, but here on earth. God came to earth, lived here, was touched, was felt, was seen, was heard. God was real on earth. You know what? That's my favorite part of Christmas. Absolutely. How God came here and became like me. So that eventually, I will grow up and be more like him. The final thought I want to share this morning is this. God makes history. There is no other religion that claims what Christianity claims. There is no other religion that can claim the incarnation. Yeah, the ancient Greeks believed that uh, their gods came down from Mount Olympus and lived uh, among the human beings from time to time. But no other religion can claim that the one true God put on flesh and bone and lived with humans. Jesus breathed the same air we breathe. He ate the same food that we eat. Probably not pizza, but I think he would have liked it. He drank the same water that we drink. He had feelings and emotions he had thoughts and ideas. He preached sermons and taught lessons. He performed real miracles. He really walked on water. He was really real. You could see him and you could hear him and you could touch him. He is not some mythical figure like Superman. Jesus was and is real. And because he was real, he could face real temptation. And he had real pain. He was hurt by a fist and a rod and a spear and a whip. He was tortured by a crown of thorns. He was nailed to a cross and a spear was thrust in his side. The baby Jesus laying in the manger was the same Jesus who died on the cross. He was literally born to die. I love the words of the Christmas song, Ring the Bells. It contains the lyrics, Born to die that man might live came to earth new life to give and it's true it's absolutely true he was born to die so that we might have eternal life it's the ultimate paradox one man had to die once so that many could live forever Jesus came to earth to die for the sin of humanity. He came to die for my sins. He came to die for your sins. Everything I've ever done, everything I've ever thought, everything I've ever been, everywhere I've ever been, everything that is contrary to the will of God in my life, Jesus died for. He died for my sins. He suffered on the cross for my sins. And you know what? He suffered on the cross for your sins too. And the fact is, the fact remains, the truth of the matter is, is that we are all sinners. We have all fallen short. We have all done things that we weren't supposed to do. We have all not done things that we are supposed to do. And I'm sorry to beat you up on this beautiful Sunday morning and to tell you uh, the, the unfortunate fact is we are all sinners. But the good news is, the wonderful news, the amazing news about this amazing grace is that God, in his great and tremendous love for us and, his, and in his mercy and grace, that Bob talked about earlier, uh, reading from Lamentations chapter 3, talking about the mercies of the Lord and the love of the Lord and how it's new every day, every single day. God pours out from heaven his mercies and his grace and his love, and he offers forgiveness, and he offers a chance to be free from the guilt and the bonds of sin, and he does it every day. And he gives us that chance 
every day, every single day of our lives, there is new mercy, there is new love, there is new forgiveness every single day. So that no matter what happened yesterday, no matter what's happened already today, we can be forgiven. And it's because the little baby Jesus, laying in the manger, went to the cross of Calvary. And it was there that he gave his life for us, for every single one of us. So that now, I don't have to walk around going, what was me? What was me? What was me? My future is bleak. My situation is hopeless. I can walk around with the joy of what Christmas is really all about. You see, we tend to want to keep Christ in the manger at Christmas time. But you know what? When it comes to Christmas, I can't help but think about the cross. You see, God made history when he sent his only son to earth. And history hasn't been the same ever since. What does a six-year-old want for his birthday? All kinds of stuff, right? Legos, a bicycle, Thomas the Train, a DVD of a recent movie that will be watched repeatedly. If you made a list, it would probably go well beyond this. But what if a child, what if a six-year-old child could get more than this? What if he could get immeasurably more than he could possibly ask or imagine? Gabriel Hurls was a six-year-old and when he turned six, that exactly, that's exactly what he got. The little boy was so focused on eating his cake that he hardly noticed the huge package in the corner of the room. When another child pointed out the large gift, Gabriel ran over and began to open it and to tear off the wrapping. It wasn't a bicycle. It wasn't any of the other items that he wanted. It was his dad. Specialist, Army Specialist Casey Hurls, home on leave from the war in Iraq. Gabriel and his father had been separated for seven months. So when Casey learned his leave would coincide with his son's birthday, he hatched a plan to offer one whale of a surprise. That's what that is. And you know what? That's what the story of Jesus' birth is all about. It's the God who works through history and who enters history and who makes history. Is he real to you? Is Jesus real to you? Better yet, is Jesus real in you? Is the word becoming flesh in your flesh? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Am I becoming more like Jesus? Is Jesus shining through you? Is Jesus shining through me? Today is Christmas in June. Today is Christmas in June. And I want to challenge you. This God who enters history, who works through history, who makes history, I challenge you to let him make some history in your life. If you need to accept Jesus as your Savior, and we offer an invitation here every Sunday, you need to let God make your sins history. And he's willing to do that. If you will accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he will make your sins history. You can come and confess him today as Savior and obey him in baptism. You know what? That's a great way to let God make history in your life. Others of us need to let God make history in our lives. We've been baptized. We, we've accepted Jesus' offer of salvation.
But we need God's Holy Spirit to make our old selves history. We're holding on to too much baggage, too much junk, and it's time to let go of it and surrender to God's Spirit. Let God make history in your life. Let him make that guilt that you're carrying around, let him make that history. Let him make that doubt that you're feeling, history. Let him make that sinful habit, history. Let him make those emotional scars, history. Let God make some history in your, in your life. And finally, we need to allow God to let us make some history in someone else's life. We need to be there for those who are hurting right now. There are people all around us who are hurting in many different ways. We need to surrender to God and allow him to use us in the lives of other people. And that might mean witnessing to someone about this wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. It might mean taking the time to listen to someone in need. It might mean volunteering some of your time to help someone else. Today is Christmas in June. And God makes history. How is he going to use you to make history today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful story of the incarnation. How you put on flesh and bone. And you came and you lived among us and you dwelt among us. You gave us yourself. And that's the most wonderful gift we could ever receive. Thank you for making history. Be with us the rest of this time. And as we leave from here today, may we go eager to know you, to love you, to share you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we offer an invitation here every Sunday. And uh, 